Welcome to Gesundheit with Jacobus, Health Talk Radio, integrating allopathic and all-natural medicine one show at a time. Here is your host, Jacobus Hollowine. What a pleasure. What a pleasure to be with you. Good morning. I hope you're doing well. It is uh, March 16, 2019, and we have a full show for you. I would like to continue my topic that I started last week in the last half hour, talking about fecal matter transplants and also perhaps about the microbiome in the intestines. And then we have the issue of the opioid crisis, which is so rampant. And if you think you are immune, which is possible, well, you know, I I have a feeling that I probably will not become an opioid-addicted person, but I'm sure that from knowing that about 700,000 people have died from opioid overdosing since 1999, probably close to 800,000 by now. This was data related to 2017. From 1999 to 2017, it was about 700,000 people, and the uh, the crisis is so intense that there is this... um, uh, this number is definitely growing. So I'm not surprised if it's about 800,000. Well, there's a lot of those 800,000 who never had thought that they would become a victim of an opioid crisis or opioid death, so to say. And this is therefore an important topic, in my opinion, that should be addressed. And let me grab my, let me grab my folder here. I need to have a good folder, don't I? So there is a lot that we can make. We, there is a lot that we can we we can make uh, about this program. And uh, so here we are on a Saturday, beautiful day, gorgeous day today. It looks like it's going to be mid thirties. Gesundheit with Jacobus is a show that means health or good health exclamation mark with me, Jacobus Holloway. That is the whole idea. We talk about health, healing, and healthy lifestyles body, mind, and spirit, most of the time with guests in the studio or by phone, but often also lately, well, at times, we have open lines or we have shows where I do not have a guest, but more and more I've started to get interested in specific topics and like to use the time in the studio by myself and with you, the listeners, to discuss topics that have hit the news or that I think are very interesting and we should know more about. As always, when we go through information, it's not here because we want you to diagnose, treat, or cure something. The purpose of the show has always been the education and information part and hopefully some entertainment. It depends who joins me in the studio me by myself may not be that entertaining. I can make myself laugh plenty times, but it may not be the same. So in any case, uh, we hope that you will find the best information for yourself. This is a show where I try to promote self-help. This is where I try to promote the, the fact that you could start a change in your life starting today, starting this hour So that if you say there is a lot that makes sense to me and I am going to change, that you can use the information 
here provided uh, to, to improve the quality of your life. I don't know if you can extend the quantity of your life, but the quality of, li- of life is something that you are very responsible for. Sometimes I talk to people and they have been in so much pain. I've been in the industry now for over 25 years uh, in a professional level. Um, I talk to people and they are really damaged. They're physically damaged. And they will tell me that they have made choices when they were younger that got them so many injuries that they avoided, that they would ignore, that they would over-medicate on with opioids, with pain pills, with whatever needed, just with the idea that they could go back to the what they even called the crazy lifestyle that they were living. Well, if you hit a point where that becomes irreversible and that the pain and the injuries and the effects that you have had because of life's choices that got you to this point, that's rough once you realize that you could have done it different. But at the same time, there are still things you can do to improve the quality of your life. And as I've said many times, when you talk about the body, mind, and spirit, we're not just talking about improving the quality of your physical life. There are emotional healing that many of us need to go through in order to find more physical healing. There are, there are books and magazines and information available. There are wonderful speakers who you can listen to to become informed, to become motivated, to expand the mind so that you feel in the mental department you have a better quality of life. And then there are those who find some kind of a spiritual relief and an open door that all of a sudden gives them that inspiration. The spirit is in, is coming down on them, in them, working through them, that makes improvements in the quality of their life. I always recommend people don't become a preacher to somebody else. Live the life. Live the life by example. Be the best you can be, and you will magnetize those who are attracted to you because they have something to share or you have indeed something that they would like to uh, learn from you so that they can improve their quality of life, just like you were inspired. So anyway, long introduction here. So last week we started talking about this fecal matter transplant. What what came, what came what was this? What, what It came about that there are, they, they discovered several years ago that Many people who have been using antibiotics, prescribed antibiotics over decades, over years, over months, for longer extended period of times, have started to develop a a intestinal disorder called Clostridium difficile, or abbreviated as C for Clostridium diff. D-I-F-F for difficile. So C. diff. C. diff really discombobulates your intestines and it causes problems such as diarrhea, trivial cramping, just wrenching pain, difficulty sleeping, constipation, gas, just what they would usually call IBS, more focused on what is now called C. diff. 
And somebody brilliant came up with the idea that if issues are happening in your intestines and not in somebody else's intestines, it could be very interesting that maybe you have either been overexposed to medication and or has this now been triggered by perhaps food allergies, uh, leaky gut syndrome, or other issues that combine and make the situation worse. So they came up with the idea, what if we take the, uh, the fecal matter, the poop, from one person and check it for any diseases, any autoimmune disorders, any allergens, any, anything that's going on. And if they found that people were totally clean and healthy, they could actually use the bowel from one person, clean it up, dry it, and actually get it into the intestines of another person. Now, that could be done several ways, uh, through an enema. So I guess you fill the baggie with poop, and then, uh, you know, no. that These are just, there's a lot going on before you get to that point. Or they would dry it and put it in capsule form, and you take it orally. Now, uh, and I think it comes with a slight minty flavor. I don't know for sure. In any case... What has happened is that the success rate of fecal matter transplants has been so enormous that most people tell a difference within a day, um, and, and, and sometimes even faster than that, that they, I, I would say the success rate is anywhere between 80 and 90%, and often after the first try. There are different companies who are that are working hard to get the best equipment and to create the best product for people to utilize this option for healing the intestines. And there is a battle going on between the FDA in the middle and on one end you find the ones who have discovered it, the doctors, the researchers, and on the other hand you have pharmaceutical companies who are trying to make this a drug they want to have it restricted. They want to have the patent. And once you have the patent, they can ask whatever they want for it. And that, that patent would probably hold for about 12 years. Now, if you have something patented for about 12 years, that means it deflates investors from putting money into new research because they're worried about not getting their return on the money. And they realize that as life progresses, and 12 years go by, a lot of new inventions could obviously be made, which therefore would, again, not be a good return on their investment. So if they're investing, they want to see quick results. So having said that, it, it's um, what, what happened is now there is a fight going on between the doctors and the pharmaceutical companies. And meanwhile, it may affect the individual. Currently, if you go to companies who are making, doing fecal, fecal metal transplants and who have products for that, you're probably looking at about $1,600. A lot of money, but at the same time, for those people who have had a lot of pain, this may actually be the, the perfect gift. And so what, what happens is if we can, um, if, if you look at the amount of people, so on March 3rd, of this year, 2019, um, 
there is a the, the Clostridium difficile, the C. diff, that strikes 500,000 Americans per year. 500,000 Americans per year. And it kills 30,000. 30,000. You think about that. How come there is no hurry with this? But it doesn't have to be medication. The bottom line is, here is somebody who has a brilliant idea, and now they're trying to politicize the whole thing. This is the problem why America is both the greatest country in the world, and many times it can be the absolute worst country in the world because of the slow bureaucratic financially invested companies and organizations and federal bureaus that are slowing down what Americans could do for their health. The American dream is to be independent. Now, is everybody, let's face it, is everybody qualified to live independently without abusing or using other people? No. Uh, I don't think that everybody is is capable of living independently. I, I, in many times, many ways, I don't think that I have all the capabilities to live completely independently. I'm not a survivalist. I'm not an. I'm not that big of an outdoorsy person, and um, I may have a hard time with that. Uh, people who know how to take care of themselves, they they can go become minimalists and survive. That is not easy for everybody. But when it comes down to somebody who says, I have this great idea, I'm going to do it, and you do it, and it works for you, then why do we have a problem in the United States that a federal drug agency is going in and says, well, you cannot you cannot do this. You cannot tell your neighbor that it works for you. You cannot tell people that it works for you, and all of a sudden it becomes an official uh, treatment. I understand what they're saying from the angle that they're coming from, but at the same time, you are you are making it very difficult for people to look for their own choices in improving the quality of their health. Does that make sense? I mean, I'm talking about treatments here. I'm not talking about you going to a grocery store and buying organic or buying uh, your ketogenic stuff or buying fresh vegetables or being a vegan or whatever. You can buy whatever you want. But uh, still, when it comes to certain therapies, there are a lot of restrictions because of, here's the key, because of the risk of injury or death to the individual. So you have federal drug agencies, you have the the Food and Drug Administration, in this case, who are telling people that they cannot approve something because it may injure you or kill you. And here we have every year in this country alone 500,000 people that are being stricken by C. diff, Clostridium difficile, which is caused by antibiotic overuse. So then you have to wonder who approved these antibiotics and who takes these antibiotics off the shelf or who starts to regulate it. 30,000 deaths. How many do more need to die before there is a sure and, and, and true therapy uh, uh, being created or 
given to people the freedom to do what they want to do. This is a problem. We are regulating stuff that doesn't need to be regulated. Listen, there are stuff that needs to be regulated and it is correctly regulated, right? I, I, I get that. But there are also things that are being invented or people try and it works for them and they're being shut down by an agency that at the same time opens the door to very dangerous therapies and treatments and medications that have killed a lot of people. And why? Because the research before it is being proposed to the FDA, because the money is so big, the 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 the, the research projects, the research projects are too limited and have not been extensive enough. So when you start putting the medications to the masses, you actually make them, the masses, the guinea pigs, to find out if the medication really works. And who of you listening today wants to be guinea pigs? Especially if you're not being completely, if it has been, has not been completely explained to you what is going on and why you're taking this. You're making uh, promises are being made that this will help you when in reality it is something that actually damages you. And nobody signs up for that. So the fecal matter, micro, the fecal microbiota transplants, I call it fecal matter transplants, are on the chopping block. The FDA is trying to figure out what is going on? And and Dr. Alexander Koritz, a gastroenterologist at the University of Minnesota, said he feared the FDA was favoring the interests of what he calls the poop drug cartel, which is a group of companies seeking approval for new ways to deliver the active ingredients in transplanted feces. So there are companies that are raising a lot of money because they tell the investors, we're going to get you the money back. And um, these are issues. Now, people who deliver, who, who are able, so that you, not everybody is qualified to be a fecal donor. There is a rigorous process. My understanding is that uh, you can go on the internet, <clears throat> you can go on the internet, and you can actually find... Uh, a questionnaire. It's about 32 questions. You go through the questions, answer them. If they like what they see, they may invite you for a one-hour interview. You go over there, talk to the companies. They are they're going through more questions. Now, if you have any allergy, if you have asthma, if you have an autoimmune disorder, if you have any kind of irritation, you're pretty much cut out of the process. You're sent home. But there are those who actually who actually have the perfect poop, so to say. And it seems to work. And we're talking here about 3% of all the people who are actually uh, applying to become a fecal donor who are approved. Those who are approved will get a nice 40 bucks for a quote-unquote donation. And they, some of them deliver that every day in a nice Ziploc baggie or something. And they, they, they freeze it and they work with it and uh, they get it ready for people to improve and actually start healing the tissue in the intestines. 
So, in any case, I appreciate you tuning in today. Hope you're doing well. This is Gesundheit with Jacobus. We will be right back. Uh, there was an article that was uh, that was published in April 2017 by the Gastroenterology and Hepatology uh, Organization, and it's called the Fecal Microbiota Transplantation from C. diff to Inflammatory Bowel Disease. And the, it says fecal microbiota transplantation has evolved from a case report in the medical literature to the basis of major innovations in the treatment of C. diff, infections, and potentially inflammatory bowel disease. In the clinical setting, FMT, fecal microbiota transplantation, FMT, was noted to significantly lower the risk of current C. diff, likely by increasing microbial diversity and altering the metabolic environment in the intestinal tract of recipients. Uh, let's see here. Consequently, a number of case series and randomized control trials have evaluated FMT in treating active ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. Unlike in C. diff, the efficacy of FMT in the treatment of irritable bowel syndrome appears to be influenced by a number of factors, including donor, microbial profiles, inflammatory burden, and the microbial diversity of the recipient. The therapeutic potential of the microbiome has led to a number of biotechnology and pharmaceutical companies isolating specific strains from healthy stool for use as targeted therapies for this therapy in clinical trials. Now, the first reported use of fecal matter transplants in modern medical literature, so that, that is interesting, maybe they used it already in China, I don't know, or in, uh, in Egypt, uh, that was in 1958 to treat a case of pseudomembranous colitis. This unusual therapy remained a medical curiosity until the 2000s when the emergence of epidemic strains of Clostridium difficile, C. diff, and major advances in microbial sequencing resurrected FMT as a novel approach to treat C. diff and in this setting, fecal matter transplant is a safe, efficacious, and cost-effective alternative to continuous or recurrent courses of antibiotics. At a mechanistic level, the introduction of donor fecal material increases the diversity of the microbiome and alters the metabolic pathways active in the intestinal flora. Now, I want to say something about this. And by the way, 522-8255, just like people can have a sperm bank and people who can have their uh, stem cells extracted and, dry and, and harvested and um, put in a bank, there are also people who can, if they know they got healthy bowels, before they have a surgery, you can actually save your bowels and have those re-implanted in you after the surgery. So if you don't want 
somebody else's uh, garlic breath, so to say, in your intestines, then you can actually take your own, extract it, dry it, let it go through the whole process, save it. But now when it is re-implanted, it's actually yours. It's your own, helping you to heal from potential antibiotic treatments that or other treatments, uh, chemo, radiation, whatever damages your um, your microbiome, so to say, the microbiome in your small intestines and of in your small intestine and colon, I should say. And so this is an interesting thing. Now, the other day, I was listening to a podcast from a doctor who was talking to a researcher in which they're now saying that not everybody does well on replacing their their lost bacteria after surgery, after antibiotic cure with probiotics. So isn't that something? It, apparently, not all strains of probiotics are per se always good for somebody else. So is acidophilus, lactobacillus acidophilus, is that good for everybody? Well, the, some of the research shows no. It's really not that essential. And I, therefore, I think that is that was an interesting comment. And this is ongoing research. This is not, this is from a couple studies. This is from a couple studies that were done. But the studies were really well done. And this research came out that there are people who are taking probiotics as being recommended by their medical doctor or because of their own initiative after they've been in an antibiotic cure and actually create more damage in the microbiome. So this is, in my opinion, something that is ongoing. And what they said, and these people are totally into alternative health. The the the, the podcast was in the alternative health category and so I, I listened to it, and they were saying, listen, we were just as surprised as pretty much everybody else, but we cannot, like Daniel is saying too, we cannot slow down the research. The research is ongoing. So things that we're learning, that doctors are learning about the human body and how the body reacts, and sometimes for the sake of money, things are pushed through that are killing people at the same time research may show that the uh, that the thought that all probiotics good bacteria the all probiotic supplements are good for everybody is not per se true that is a shock that is a shock to learn that but if that's the way the progress and research is we simply need to accept it and work with it so to me it is an important thing and I don't like to hear it. I mean, I sell dietary supplements in the store, and we sell a lot of probiotics. Now, that does again, it doesn't mean that the probiotics are not good for you because obviously those studies are out there as well. But now there are studies coming out that perhaps your probiotic is not helping you, then maybe it's good to do something else. And, and I want to add to that is that some people buy the same probiotic, acidophilus, bifidus, whatever, all the time. They like one, and it is 30 capsules, one a day. They take it, and they take it, and take it, and take it, and take it for years. 
I think it is good to just rotate different strains, different bacteria when you do a probiotic. And I have to say that some of the research done on the soil, S-O-I-L, soil-based organisms, the, 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 the prescriptocyst that we carry in the store, which has close to 20 years of clinical research, 15 years or so used in clinical settings with great success, prescriptocyst, and then you have the Garden of Life product, the soil organisms, the, um, of course, now I forgot the name, um, uh, something defense. Anyway, but I'll find that if you like to know that. Uh, that is another one that is made from soil, S-O-I-L, organisms. And there is something about those organisms that are not the same as what we find in the regular probiotics that you usually find, that, that you usually uh, use. So it may be good for you if you have intestinal problems to also change your probiotic on a regular basis. Every month there's buy a different brand, uh, a different product, different strains, high, low, whatever, and use that if you are feeling good with probiotics. In this way, you are training your intestines to work with everything you give it, not just the 12 or the 8 or the 6 or the 24 different strains that you have been buying all along. Because there's hundreds of strains in the intestines, we just need to nourish all of them. 522-8255. This is Gesundheit with Jacobus. You're tuned in to News Radio AM 1450 KMMS AM 1340 KPRK. C. diff is a significant complicating factor in patients with uh, irritable bowel disease who undergo clinical relapse. Between 5% and 20% of patients with flare-ups are noted to be positive for the C. diff toxin or gene. This is a uh, this is important information. So they're, they're trying to research: is it possible that if we use the uh, fecal matter transplants for C uh, for C diff, could we also use it for Crohn's colitis and other irritable bowel disorders? And the answer is, it's still in the pipeline. It's still not. Uh, shown has not shown that it per se works for that but it makes sense to the researchers that's why they are researching it but it has not been shown to completely be 100% as let me say not 100% but to be as effective for those who are suffering from C. diff and since 500,000 people are diagnosed every year in this country alone 500,000 and 30,000 are dying, I think a lot of people would look at this and say, you know what, there is something to say for this. Now, there is also some research done on, um, on actually omega-3 on the microbiome. And that was an interesting one that uh, surprised me. I do know, obviously, omega-3, fish oil, for example, specifically fish oil, is very good as an anti-inflammatory. It is always anti-inflammatory. But now there has been a report done that was published in uh, actually in 2016 
that talks about the understanding, the impact of omega-3 rich diet, rich diet on gut microbiota. So it says over here, among exogenous factors, exogenous means outside the body, from outside coming in, endogenous is from the inside or on the inside or inside out. So among exogenous factors affecting gut microbiome, diet appears to have the largest effect. We sought to understand the changes of the gut microbiota in response to an omega-3 rich diet. This case study investigated changes of gut microbiota with an omega-3 rich diet. Fecal samples were collected from a 45-year-old male who consumed 600 milligrams of omega-3 daily for 14 days. Now, some of the health-related benefits of omega-3 may be due in part to increases in butyrate-producing bacteria. These findings may shed light on the mechanisms explaining the effects of omega-3 in several chronic diseases and may also serve as an existing foundation for tailoring personalized medical treatments. So they found out that Diets such as the Mediterranean diet, which is widely accepted as a healthy dietary pattern, have been promoted as a model of healthy eating based on its strong association with preserving a good health status and a quality of life. Some of the marine sources of omega-3, polyunsaturated fatty acids, includes the EPA, the DHA, and the DPA, and the DPA is one that we don't talk about very much, but it is docosa pentanoic acid. So there is the EPA, which is the ecosa pentanoic acid, the DHA, which is docosa hexanoic, hexa, hexanoic acid, and uh, now we have the DPA or the doco, uh, docosa pentanoic acid, which are no longer, uh, which are the longer chain omega three forms. Interestingly. High consumption of fish oils, providing a major source of omega-3, has been implicated as an important contributor of the health-related benefits associated with the dietary pattern, such as the Mediterranean. The relationship between the gut microbiota and its host, us, play a key role in immune system maturation. Uh, excuse me, I should read that again. <clears throat> the relationship between the gut microbiota and its host plays a key role in immune system maturation, food digestion, drug metabolism, detoxification, vitamin production, and prevention of pathogenic bacteria adhesion. So pathogenic means it causes diseases. In fact, the composition of the microbiota is influenced, or the composition of the microbiota is influenced by environmental factors such as diet, antibiotic therapy, and environmental exposure to microorganisms. Additionally, gut bacteria can vary according to sex, age, and geographical origin of the individual. More importantly, an overgrowth of disease-forming colonies, pathogenic microbial colonies, may trigger an imbalance known as dysbiosis, which is a condition that has been implicated in the development of multiple diseases, such as cancer, metabolic diseases, and autoimmune conditions, and increased susceptibility to infection. So, 
the impact of omega-3 fatty acid-rich diets on the gut, microbiota, and, more importantly, as a modulator of the bacterial populations associated with overall health, has been poorly explored. So all of a sudden, they realize that when you start eating more omega-3, specifically this DPA, this docosapentanoic acid, the DPA, that it starts to regulate the, the good bacteria in the intestines into proportions that are strong for us individually. They're good for us individually. And so this is an interesting research that is continuing to go on. And uh, this was indeed, one of the tests was done on, on one person. And they realized, listen, we need to do more testing on this. We cannot just say that um, it, it works because it works for one person, it works for all the persons. But they felt as wide a discussion as they had with this in this test they say over here we they feel they got a point here and said we saw to understand the changes of the gut microbiota in response to an omega-3 rich diet in a healthy male adult the patient's predominance of the major phyla did not change with omega-3 um, uh, the findings demonstrate that an omega-3 rich diet is capable of producing significant changes in the gut bacteria, which may explain its health benefits in several chronic diseases. So to me, it's phenomenal that we start seeing that using more omega-3, and you can do that with capsules if you don't want to eat that much fish. But in this case, there was truly a, a person who... Um, who started consuming more omega-3 and we at the store actually started carrying this uh, this product which is promoted by the company Enzymatica. Now Enzymatica is known for its enzymes but Dr. Michael Murray who is a well-known naturopathic physician who's written a lot of books doing a lot of research he loves to do that and gives a lot of lectures actually a long time ago he was a guest on my show for a short period of time though um, Dr. Michael Murray came up with this research and created a product that is an omega-3 fat that we have in capsules at the store specifically with the balance of the DPA the EPA and the DHA to help people balance their gut bacteria so good stuff we're going to continue with more we're going to talk about the opioids when we come back stay tuned for that we'll we'll talk to you soon what are topics today uh, the fecal matter transplant is one of them and uh, we talked about the digestive issues in the microbiome in our intestines just in the last hour but i do want to jump on another big topic that i feel is affecting so many people in this country and that is the crisis of the opioids and we uh, that is a quick word but it means a lot and this is something that would be worth talking about now i can already tell you even if i would just start talking right now for the next two hours i will not be able to get done and so we'll we'll see how we're going to address it what we're going to talk about if there are going to be any calls coming in from you or if I can pretty much focus on explaining things the way they come. 
Either way, it's all good with me. Where do we start? You know, there was a very interesting article that I um, that I downloaded, and it is from the Elsevier. Elsevier is a very reputable research, uh, internet research place where great articles are being written and often peer-reviewed with tons of reference material. And this is one that was published in um, December 2014. So it's been a while. Uh, what is that? Four and a half years ago? Four, four plus years ago. And it was published by the American Pain Society, and it's called The Fentanyl Story. It's written by Theodore Stanley from the Department of Anesthesiology School of Medicine, the University of Utah, Salt Lake City. And it is about the history of fentanyl. And I, I thought to touch on the history a little bit, I, I am not a great fan of prescription drugs. And I think that many of you know that. Obviously, we we uh, there are disorders, but it doesn't mean that there are no prescription drugs on the market that need to be discussed because they could have benefits. So I am not against all medication. I think there is a place for medication, and it is something that you as an individual have to determine if this is what you need in your life. The problem is that the research shows that when it comes to opioids, OxyContin and fentanyl, heroin, these are these have a very addictive quality to themselves, to, to them. And that can affect many people on different levels. It's not just about reducing pain. It is also where the the addiction the potential to addiction is so great that not only are people losing their lives but financially they're ruined and families are literally split apart because of the addictive nature and this hits the core of american society at this point where we are the largest consumer of opioids in the world and you can look at it and see there is a literally a destruction that looks like it's coming from the outside because we do know most opioids are made in China and transported through Mexico into the United States. That's the majority from what the research shows. In a way, we on the inside, inside the country, inside the borders, inside ourselves, are the ones who say we'll do it or we don't do it. So there is an internal battle going on, both inside the individual and inside the country, about the uncontrolled use of opioids. So the interesting thing is, uh, let me let me just read. I read. I'll read pieces and then. I will give you my opinion. Uh, the Fentanyl Story by the American Pain Society, published in December 2014, uh, published by Elsevier. Fentanyl, introduced more than 50 years ago, has become the most often used opioid for intraoperative analgesia, 
in other words, kind of a pain medication for surgeries and beyond. Since the early 1990s, the fentanyl patch has been available for management of chronic pain of all forms of cancer, as well as the persistent, intense pain from many non-cancerous maladies. More than a half dozen rapid-onset transmucosal fentanyl preparation have been developed. Uh, developed so it transmucosal. So these are going in the mouth. That could be a sublingual. It could be something as a patch that goes on the uh, like a like a some little thing that you put on the inside of your cheek. But it can also be done through nasal sprays. Has been developed, approved, launched, and popularized for quote unquote breakthrough pain syndromes in the past twenty years. The purpose of this article is to describe why this opioid has become so important in the treatment of pain in modern clinical practice. The data indicate that fentanyl's popularity has occurred because it has minimal cardiovascular effects, does not result in increases in plasma histamine, is relatively short in onset of action and duration of effect, it is easy and inexpensive to synthesize and prepare for the marketplace, and it is now familiar to clinicians working in pain and perioperative medicine throughout the world. It was actually developed by a by a man, Dr. Paul Paul Janssen, and the Janssen Company of Beers, Belgium, in December 1960. Isn't that something? It's almost 60 years old. The drug was first used as an intravenous analgesic clinically in Europe in 1963 and in the United States as a component of Innovar in 1968. And since then has become one of the world's most important and frequently used opioid analgesics. Today, fentanyl is the opioid most often used intravenously for intraoperative analgesia in the United States, the rest of North America, Central and South America, throughout Europe, the Middle East, and most of developed Asia and Africa. In some of the world, the fentanyl patch is often used for the chronic pain of all forms of cancer, as well as the persistent, intense pain from many non-cancerous maladies. In the last 20 years, more than a half dozen rapid-onset transmucosal fentanyl preparations have been developed, approved, launched, and popularized for break, breakthrough pain syndrome. So one of the interests of Dr. Paul Janssen, uh, Paul, Paul Janssen is what you would say over here, we would say Paul Janssen, who founded this company, Janssen Pharmaceutica, in 1953, was creating potent, effective, rapid-acting analgesics to treat the many pain problems of the time. In 1953... Both morphine and mepridine were known and available. Dr. Janssen and his colleagues in his company believed that the pepperidine ring present in both morphine and mepridine was the most important chemical structure that produced analgesia in these molecules. So this article, it, it, to me, it was very insightful just to look at the research as it has developed because... You come up with an idea, and this the, the Janssen Pharmaceutical came up with an idea, but then people start going like, okay, what else can we do with this? How can we get this into people? Does it have to be injections? Can we do a tablet? Can we do a spray? Can we have it for children? Can we make it into lollipops or candies? And some of those 
literally became successful. Some of them did not. And when you look at the whole process that is involved for the pharmaceutical companies to, number one, get approval by the FDA, and number two, uh, be accepted, be promoted by the doctors, the clinicians for their patients, you find out that this is a battle that goes on for these people. It's a big struggle. I mean, it's one thing if you come up with a product and you say, you know, we got this great product. The next thing is, how do you get it to the people? And when you look at and one over here, it says, in the past 30 years, the cost, and I'm not saying I feel sorry, but in one way or another, it will explain why the prices of prescription drugs are so high, especially now these opioids, because you make people dependent on and then you kill them financially. Um, the, the, in the past 30 years, the cost of inventing, developing, getting approval for, and then marketing new drugs in the United States and throughout the world has markedly increased. In the early 1980s, so we're talking here about almost 40 years ago, 35, 40 years ago, in the early 1980s, the cost of this process was less than 75 million, with an M for Mary, 75 million for the average drug. In the early 80s, per drug, 75 million. Today, it is more than 1 billion, with a B. As a result, most large pharmaceutical companies can only afford to invest in a new drug that have the potential of being blockbusters, which means a blockbuster drug is it has the possible sales of more than a billion per year. A billion per year. New drugs with potential sales of 200 million or lower are far less attractive for the largest, largest pharmaceutical companies the largest pharmaceutical companies. In contrast, smaller pharmaceutical companies often focus on patenting and developing older, well-known drugs in a newer drug delivery system if those novel systems can provide advantages to patients and or caregivers. The smaller companies do this because the cost of developing the older drugs in a newer drug delivery system today is much less expensive, sometimes only, only 30 to 50 million per drug. In the second decade of the 21st century, the problem of developing new pain drugs or drug delivery concepts is becoming even more difficult as costs of development continue to escalate and the intense focus on cost containment by clinicians and hospitals and the difficulty for industry in getting sales personnel in front of clinicians are breaking apart many useful relationships that used to exist between industry and the clinical community. So this was a this was written in December 2014. This is truly an issue that I will mention in another article. The the pressure that is being put on the sales reps to go to the doctors, to bribe them, to bribe them to sell their stuff, to promote their stuff to uh, their drugs to patients is 
literally out of control. The pressure is so high that it causes many people, you know, to to be so frustrated and and depressed, they're committing suicide because they cannot hit the quota. And and then you have the doctors who are constantly bombarded and they feel and I listen, I'm in retail. So I look at trends and several of the workers at the store will say there is a new trend that leans more towards this. Sometimes it is a rapper or broker who comes in and says, we have seen a trend moving into this direction. We have come out with a product that meets the need for the trend. And so then we look at it and then we say, well, we want to be up to date. We want to make sure that we have what it takes to help people. It's like in the olden days, if you wanted to have a video or a DVD of the latest movie, you go to the store and you expect it to be there at eye height or wherever it would be, but that it was waiting for you to be picked up. And you hated it when you get there and you found out that all the copies were gone. Now, these are the things that have created in people this immediate need for satisfaction. There is no delay. There's no delay. You need it now. Do it now, right? Here is how. You know, this is the way the industry is. That is why people are uh, moving away from visiting brick-and-mortar stores and rather buy over Amazon and support a man like Jeff Bezos and everything that he is doing simply because they want instant gratification. I would rather uh, just sit behind my computer and just order this online and not have to waste anything and get it for the so-called best price possible instead of instead of actually getting in a car and moving and meeting people and greeting and, and being around and have that part of life that is important as well. Again, there are people for who this is perfect because of where they live, but there are a lot of people who have become so accustomed to getting instant satisfaction, instant gratification, that is simply what is needed. You see it often, we talk about children participating in sports games. It doesn't matter anymore if you win. Everybody gets a trophy. Everybody needs to have the feeling that they did something good. It is the same with work, with schooling. We try to uh, we try to make the education more simple so that everybody feels they belong. We need to send everybody to college because everybody needs to know what it is to be in college. It, it goes on and on. And you look at this, and for me, there is a direct line to medication because it's all about how can we get this immediate result in the person who is suffering. There is no delay. There is no suffering allowed. You got to get better right away. You got to feel better right away. This is a long way around to try to get my point across. I'm sorry about that. So there are different ways to to look at this. So 30 to 50 million per drug. In the second decade of the 21st century, the problem of developing new pain drugs or drug delivery concepts is becoming even more difficult as the cost of development continue to escalate and the intense focus on cost containment by clinicians and hospitals and the difficulty for industry in getting sales personnel 
in front of clinicians and then breaking apart many useful relationships, that is the problem. People constantly feel this pressure. Oh my God, I have to satisfy this person. Otherwise, my relationship will go down. If I don't do this, I'm missing out on a golf tournament. I'm missing out on a cruise. I'm missing out on something for my family. It is really interesting how everybody thinks, you know, but you find out that when the industry is pushing for promotion of a product, then it either is the creme de la creme or it really is something that has been so much money invested into, we somehow need to get our return on the investment. So let's push it, push it, push it. And there is indeed an article, let me see where I find it, of a, um, uh, I think it happened in Massachusetts. Here is one that was published on MedPage Met page today, and that was published in January 18 of this year, doctors more frequently prescribed opioids in counties with more direct physician marketing of opioids, uh, with more direct-to-physician marketing of opioids, according to a population-based cross-sectional study. Across over 2,000 U.S. counties, prescribing rates were tied to opioid marketing across three measures, the number of total payments, the total dollar amount spent, and the number of doctors receiving payments per capita. Doctors receiving payments per capita showed the strongest association with prescribing rates increasing with every one, uh, uh, let's see, well, there was a number over here. The number of overdose mortalities, the overdose mortalities was also associated with the marketing of opioids across all these three measures, with overdose mortalities most strongly associated with the number of marketing interactions as well. So uh, when we come back out of the break, I want to continue with this because there was actually a family who owned a pharmaceutical company who were pushing, pushing, pushing so much that some doctors were just having way too much of the stuff in the house and the sales were like ridiculous and these people have been arrested luckily uh, because it was all about the money and worry about losing. So stay tuned please. This is Gesundheit with Jacobus. We're going to be right back. And uh, we'll, we'll get into that as we go. But we have a caller. Good morning, caller. Thanks for joining. Your name, please. How can I help you? Good morning, Jacobus. This is Pete. Pete, good morning to you. You know, if you, if you pay attention and, and watch what's going on with the pharmaceuticals, they, you can see that the one thing they've done is they've, they've switched to direct marketing. In other words, they're on, you're watching the ad on TV for this drug or that drug, and they're saying, ask your doctor about, then they name the drug. They're marketing directly to the potential patient. And the way that they beat cost is to rename an already approved drug that will not only, now they found out that this drug helps this disease or this disorder also. Right. right. So they're getting past that that, that cost, it, it, you know, they're passing it on. 
the other thing, of course, is the revolving door between the CDC and the FDA, between the pharmaceutical companies and those two government agencies, and that's a huge problem. Yes. The CDC spends three, I think it's $3.4 billion on vaccines yes. every year. Uh-huh. Every year. So there's the, there, again, you see that mix of government and the pharmaceutical companies, and now we're seeing it with the banks and pharmaceutical companies, the um, social media and pharmaceutical companies. Yes, interesting. You know, if, yeah. if, if, and, and I mean, I'm seeing, you, you, can, you will see, if you pay attention, you will see two new drugs about a week. And that's just on Fox News. You'll see two new drugs a week. What people don't understand is that James and Lachlan Murdoch, who are in control of Fox, sit on multiple boards of big pharmaceutical companies. Yes. So there's a lot of stuff going on out there that that seems to fly under the wire that most people are not aware of because they're not, you know, either they don't need any drugs or they're not interested in doing a little bit of research, and it doesn't take a lot, you know, to to find out what's actually going around. And uh, you brought up the Purdue family. Yes. (laughs) I mean, you know, how much more proof do we need we need to be a little more careful about what we're sticking down our throat. Yes. Well, what happened over there is definitely a, uh, a big issue uh, promoting these uh, things right through that family. So that is definitely so. You mentioned Purdue. I didn't mention Purdue, but I did talk about a family that is involved in this. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Well, and we can go back. Let's go back a little further. If you, if you want to see the underhandedness of some of these operations, look what Bayer did with their hemophiliac drugs for bleeders, they found the federal government actually found out, they actually did their job, and said, no, you've got this HIV virus and this this medication for hemophiliacs. You can't sell that. You can't sell it. So what did they do? They took it to Spain and Portugal and sold it. That, you know, now, where's the moral and, and ethic, ethical responsibility in that? Yes. I mean, that's, to me, that's sick. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good point, Speed. I appreciate it. Well, that's, you know, like I said, we need to be a little bit more careful of what we're... Well, we are. There are certain things that happen behind our back that we have no control over, but at the end, in the end... There is a lot of things that we can have control over. And like I mentioned earlier, the 700,000 people who have died or have died since 1999, since this whole opioid crisis started to grow, those people, many of them did not choose to die. Uh, Some of them knew the risk was high. And and you can see that right now also in social media, how people are communicating about where to get the next high. Um, they realize they don't want to die, but they want to get high. <laughs> right. <laughs> not, not understanding that, they, you know, those two things live together. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're complete, they're complete opposites, but they, they rhyme. Yep. They, uh, you know, the one thing we can do, I guess, is if you've been pres- prescribed a new medication, Get the paperwork from the pharmaceutical. Don't rely on the little piece of paper that comes with the drug. Read, get it from the pharmaceutical, and look at the list of possible side effects. They've made them now, put it on TV, yeah. and that's bad enough to me. I mean, I can't, I'd look at some of these and say, why would anybody take that? But 
people do yeah. because they're in a, you know they're between a rock and a hard place or in yeah. pain or whatever. But to read right. that, get that piece of paper and read it. Read it. I agree. Make you your know? choice. I got to move anyway, on, Pete. Yeah, thanks for your thanks. show, buddy. You bet. Bye bye. A lot of national attention has been paid to drug companies paying large amounts of money to doctors to promote the product. But what's actually much more widespread, legal, and occurring practically all across the U.S. is much lower cost meals that drug companies offer to doctors. Uh, this is what Hatland, Hatland was one of the researchers over here that uh, was involved in this, uh, in this article. Um, Hatland said an interview in which a media relations representative was present. Quote, that actually seems to be the more important factor of prescribing and potential overdose death. Boris Tabakov, PhD, a pharmacology researcher at the University of Colorado, said that certain states are now putting forward penalties regarding the marketing of opioid products to doctors. Last year, the New Jersey set limits. New Jersey set limits on the number of manufacturer gifts and payments that can be given to prescribers. More recently, Massachusetts filed a lawsuit against Purdue Pharmaceuticals, alleging that the company established tight relationships with academic centers in order to increase physician prescribing habits and influence medical students' attitude towards the painkillers. So this is a this is a problem whereby just as Pete says that um, this is an ongoing thing whereby promotions are being done and all the good things are being said legally all the side effects will be mentioned but that's not what people see or hear they are so diff they are so desperate for pain relief this is something that uh, that is important to notice it says over here. The highest rates of marketing were focused in coastal areas and in the northeast, obviously the most people, which could reflect these areas having a higher proportion of practicing physicians or a higher number of patients with health insurance. The combination of pharmaceutical marketing in combination with excessive, inappropriate prescribing by physicians could be viewed as one of the root causes of the current opioid epidemic. So the combination of pharmaceutical marketing in combination with the excessive, inappropriate prescribing by physicians could be viewed as one of the root causes of the current opioid epidemic. In total, <coughs> excuse me, the researchers found 434,754, four, almost 440,000 opioid marketing payments totaling 39.7 million, which were distributed across 67,000 physicians in 2,200 counties. The authors noted several limitations to the study, one of which was that long-term trends were unavailable since marketing data on the subject has only recently been published. So when you look at the Purdue Pharma company, what they're talking about, NPR came out with an article on January 16 of this year, 2019. And it talks about the Sackler family behind the Purdue Pharma knew that its painkiller, OxyContin, 
was causing overdoses, yet they continued to cash in as death mounted. The Massachusetts Attorney General alleges in court documents filed on that Tuesday in January. In a new 274-page memorandum, Attorney General Maura Healy details a chain of command that she alleges implicates eight Sackler family members as well as nine Purdue board members or executives in the nation's deadly opioid epidemic. An earlier version of the memo filed on December 21 was more than half redacted after Purdue Pharma argued to withhold information about the Sacklers, one of the richest families in the United States. Some sections remain blacked out in Tuesday's filing. The new memo spells out Healy's allegations that the Sacklers flooded Massachusetts with sales reps, influenced states' legislation, and financially backed medical facilities and universities so they could tout Purdue opioids. Healy described former Purdue chairman and president Richard Sackler as a micromanager obsessed with profits in Massachusetts and the rest of the country. Tracking national sales, Richard Sackler demanded that he traveled to doctors' offices alongside reps and complained advertising about the opioids and complained that advertising about the opioids wasn't as positive as he wanted. Internally, executives worried about Sackler's promotion of opioids, according to Healy. Sackler wasn't satisfied with Purdue Pharma sales in 2011, the documents allege. After one, quote, after one week of prescriptions doubled Purdue's forecast, Richard Sackler wrote to the sales staff, I had hoped for better results. So after one week of prescriptions doubled Purdue's forecast, he still says, I had hoped for better results. That year, Massachusetts sales reps pushed doctors to prescribe Purdue Pharma's opioids more than 1,000 times to elderly patients with arthritis, the memo said. But Sackler wanted more. One sales rep was ordered to increase prescriptions by 62% in Massachusetts. Purdue also threatened to fire two reps in Massachusetts because the physicians they visited hadn't written enough opioid prescriptions. Hadn't written enough. The then sales vice president, Russell Gazdia, G-A-S-D-I-A, Russell Gazdia, drafted a message to Purdue's Boston District in February 2012 stating, the Boston District is failing. The sales manager agreed in an email stating they should fire Massachusetts sales reps who were not increasing their opioid prescriptions. Gazdia allegedly agreed that firing all the reps would, quote, unquote, send a message. It is unclear if they fired anyone. In a statement to WBUR, it's probably a uh, Massachusetts radio station, Purdue Pharma claims that Healy is trying to vilify a single manufacturer whose medicines represent less than 2% of opioid pain prescriptions rather than doing the hard work of trying to solve a complex public health crisis. The company, which is based in Stamford, Connecticut, adds that the complaint distorts critical facts and cynically conflates prescription opioid medications 
with illegal heroin and fentanyl, which are the leading cause of overdose in Massachusetts. It says over here in the claim, it says, At the OxyContin launch party, Richard Sackler spoke as the, vice, as the senior vice president responsible for sales. He asked the audience to imagine a series of natural disasters, an earthquake, a volcanic eruption, a hurricane, and a blizzard. He said, The launch of OxyContin tablets will be followed by a blizzard of prescription that will bury the competition. The prescription blizzard will be so deep, dense, and white, unquote, white. Over the next 20 years, the Sacklers made Richard's boast come true. They created a man-made disaster. Their blizzard of dangerous prescription buried children and parents and grandparents across Massachusetts, and the burials continue. The Attorney General's complaint includes a map of Massachusetts with areas of the state Purdue allegedly targeted during a rapid period of sales workforce expansion. Now, I'm reading here about the Sackler family and the Purdue Pharmaceutical. Don't be mistaken. When it comes to making money and knowing that opioids have an unbelievable return on your investment because they're very inexpensive to make, but they're very dangerous, this is not just going on with Purdue. This is going on. How much you are going to be affected by it depends on you. So the Attorney General's complaint includes a map of Massachusetts with areas of the state Purdue allegedly targeted during a rapid period of sales, sales workforce expansion. Boston, southeastern Massachusetts and Cape Cod. Sales reps visited primary care doctors, primary care doctors considered ripe for influence. In a few cases, they were daily visits, like they have nothing else to do. Purdue staff warned its board that a new Bedford doctor and Brookfield doctor had prescribed opioids inappropriately, according to the memo, but no one in the company immediately reported it to medical licensing officials. The two doctors made Purdue Pharma $823,000 combined in two years. This is just two doctors. $823,000 in sales for Purdue Pharma in two years. The two physicians and several others who became Purdue's most frequent prescribers of Massachusetts eventually lost their licenses, but not before authorizing hundreds of thousands of pills each. At least three of the physicians lost patients to an overdose death. In 2013, according to the memorandum, staff told the Sackler family that drug overdose death had tripled since 1990, while OxyContin had become the top-selling painkiller in the country. The complaint alleges, quote, staff told the Sacklers that tens of thousands of deaths were only the tip of the iceberg for every death there were more than 100 people suffering from prescription opioid dependence or abuse. So tens of thousands of deaths times 100 because they say for every death, more than 100 people suffer from opioid dependence or abuse. Purdue counters in its statement that Healy, quote, has cherry-picked from among tens of millions of emails 
and other business documents produced by Purdue. In the memo, Healy lists Purdue or the Sattler family investments and influence in Massachusetts, including a Purdue pain program at Massachusetts General Hospital and the Sackler School of Graduate Biomedical Sciences at Tufts. After Purdue Pharma donated $3 million in 2002 to a hospital, the hospital named its pain center after the company. Well, in any case, you get the, you get the drift. There is a... There is an ongoing uh, story over here about Purdue Pharma, but that is only one of them. And this is where the crisis has started. So when you talk about an opioid crisis, then we, we, we have to look at fentanyl, in this case, invented about 50, almost 60 years ago by a pharmaceutical company in Belgium by a man who I think is actually Dutch, Paul Janssen. Paul Janssen and Janssen Pharmaceutical, they have been very much involved, not just in the production of fentanyl, the discovery of fentanyl, but also helping other companies produce fentanyl in a form that would be better, easier absorbable. So that there's a patch. The patch is very absorbable, transdermal, but then also there is transmucosal, which is done through sprays, lozenges, inside the cheek, like a little... Uh, like a little uh, piece of, what do you call it, something that the cells dissolves, and then nasal sprays. And then there are uh, so many other ways that it comes. It is a, a an incredible absorbable product that is actually easily absorbs in the fat of the body and has very quick release. Fentanyl itself is very quickly released, and depending on the way that you use it, I would say no more than 18 um, for mo- for many people within 20 minutes to a half hour, they start having success. If you have certain forms of fentanyl that are taken, that may take 18 to 23 hours, but then they last, they last for many, many days. You only have to do one therapy, but you won't have immediate results. So you're going to have to replace or continue taking it every few days so that you are always pain-free. But and this is something that will be brought up in the show as well as we come back after the news, is that when that that the proof is in the pudding that continuous use of opioids or prescription drugs for that matter, continued use is not successful. For many people, there is a placebo effect. They think I'm taking this medication now the pain is gone. And actually they, if they were to be given anything else with the thought that that's what they're taking, they would actually discover that the pain would also be restricted. So how can we control pain receptors in the brain? There are different ways to do it. But what we're talking about on this show is this unbelievable opioid disorder that we have, the crisis that we have, and it needs to be addressed. So fentanyl, interesting invention to help people with cancer pain people after surgery or get people in ready for surgery very quickly within one or two minutes people are sedated and then the surgery can start so it has really quickly improved uh, how surgeries are being performed and then when people come out of the the uh, the rouse so to say um, there is the, the pain is uh, they're doing much better on the pain uh, receptors as well so the the invention of fentanyl is actually fascinating. 
It is a uh, it is something that we we cannot ignore, so to say. But everything that is good or has a good idea is usually manipulated by others to be used for something bad. And sadly enough, the dollar signs always play a role in this. So let's continue to talk about this topic, which is very powerful, very important. When we come back after the news, I appreciate you listening. This is Gesundheit with Jacobus. We will be right back. There are different options available uh, for for us to fight a potential infection, but neither here nor there were being prescribed antibiotics. And over time, this has deregulated our intestinal bacteria, the microbiota is what they call it. It contains everything. There's not just the bacteria, but also the enzymes and the mucus and all that, the membranes, etc. in the intestines are de- deregulated. And so... People develop something that's called C. diff or Clostridium difficile. And what we have seen is that there is a therapy out. And as I mentioned, it was actually already invented back in 1958, about uh, that time when they started doing fecal matter transplants, where literally the bowels from a healthy person are cleaned up and then inserted into an unhealthy person, somebody who's suffering with very good results. If you do it correctly, the results can be immediate after one treatment, uh, 80 to 90% success rate. So those are important facts to keep in mind. That was one part of the discussion. Then the last hour, I started focusing on the opioid crisis, and I want to continue with that today. The opioid crisis is something that uh, we could spend literally next four or five hours and not hit the entire topic and the concerns that come with it and how vast it is, and the troops involved, as well as the people suffering. So I'll do the best I can with what I have. Uh, Some information was maybe elaborate in the last hour, last half hour. I try to keep it tight in this hour with uh, explaining to you what we're dealing with. What are opioids? So opioid is a term for drugs that bind to opioid pain, opioid receptors in the body. They include everything from heroin and fentanyl to prescription pills like oxycodone, oxycontin, hydrocodone, Vicodin, codeine, and morphine. It is a huge bucket since it covers illegal substances as well as drugs prescribed by doctors, which actually is part of the issue. Regular use of opioid drugs, even as prescribed by a doctor or medical professional, can lead to dependence. Addiction isn't limited to the people using just illegal opioids like heroin. Misuse of prescription opioids is a huge part of the epidemic. Misuse includes many people with a prescription not taking it as prescribed, taking too many pills at once, for example, or people without a prescription taking pills they get from a family medicine cabinet They maybe get it from friends, random strangers at a party, or a drug dealer selling pills illegally. Taking opioids at too high of a dose or for too long a period of time increases the risk of addiction, overdose, and death. The likelihood of using opioid painkillers long-term spikes after just five days of use. Five. And because of this, a lot of people are dying. In 2016, 
more than 42,000 people died of opioid overdoses and in, Amer- in America alone, and more than 115 people every day. And that is 150 people too many. So a couple, uh, this is really some facts. So this is from the National Institute of uh, on Drug Abuse, the National Institute of Health, the National Institute on Drug Abuse. It uh, was published, was, uh, published uh, on January 2019. It's called Opioid Overdose Crisis. It says every day, more than 130 people in the United States. So it was 115, slightly different number from last year. But every day, more than 130 people in the United States die after overdosing on opioids. Every day. Every day. The misuse of and addiction to opioids, including prescription pain relievers, heroin, and synthetic opioids, such as fentanyl, is a serious national crisis that affects public health as well as social and economic welfare. The CDC estimates that the total economic burden of prescription opioid misuse alone in the United States is $78.5 billion a year including the cost of health care, lost productivity, addiction treatment, and criminal justice involvement. My goodness, $78.5 billion a year. How many miles of wall can be built with that money? The Centers for Disease says an economic burden, $78.5 billion every year. That's an estimate which includes the cost of health care, lost productivity, addiction treatment, and criminal justice involvement. And then you're not even talking about the emotional burden, which is often loss of job. It could be relationship issues, divorces because of addictions, financial ruin. Boy, oh boy, this is intense. In the late 1990s, pharmaceutical companies reassured the medical community that patients would not become addicted to prescription opioid pain relievers and that healthcare providers began to prescribe them at greater rates. The subsequent, yeah, so isn't that something? They were promised, reassured, reassured. The pharmaceutical companies reassure something? Well, that'll be the day. This subsequently led to widespread diversion and misuse of these medications before it became clear that these medications could indeed be highly addictive. Opioid overdose rates began to increase. In 2017, more than 47,000, it's only a year and a half ago, more than 47,000 Americans died as a result of an opioid overdose, including prescription opioids, heroin, and illicitly manufactured fentanyl, which is a powerful synthetic opioid. That same year, an estimated 1.7 million people in the United States suffered from substance use disorders related to prescription opioid pain relievers, and 652,000 suffered from a heroin use disorder. So, in 2017, we'll say the numbers again. 2017, more than 47,000 Americans died as a result of opioids. 1.7 million suffered from substance use disorders related to prescription. And I can tell you all the side effects, but they're not pretty. So I think if you think 
What's not, a, what's not pretty? It's usually a side effect of opioid use. And also in 2017, 652,000 suffer from a heroin use disorder. Roughly 21 to 29% of patients prescribed opioids for chronic pain misuse them. So let's say one in five, almost one in four, one in four patients prescribed opioids for chronic pain misuse them. Between 8 and 12% develop an opioid use disorder. 8 to 12% develop an opioid use disorder. An estimated, so if you take, if you take one in four people abusing them and 8 to 12% develop an opioid use disorder, that is a third of the people who are using it is having a disorder. So one in three out of the one in four. An estimated 4 to 6% who misuse prescription opioids transition to heroin. About 80% of people who use heroin first misused prescription opioids. 80% of people who use heroin first misused prescription opioids. Opioid overdoses increased 30% from July 2016 through September 2017 in 52 areas in 45 states. The Midwest region saw opioid overdose increase 70% from July 2016 through September 2017. That's huge. 70% increase in one year. Opioid overdoses in large city increased by 54% in 16 states. You know, and you got to wonder, this is just the people we know. These are not the people who are being killed. Uh, the people who die in in solitude, who, who literally just die. Uh, we, we may find them in years from now and never know why they died. This is just the people who we know of. 70% increase in one year from July 2016 through September 2017. So either is this because of the prescription drugs uh, being prescribed by doctors, or is this about the people abusing it? Well, a combination. And how many of those are actually illicit drugs? The issue has become a public health crisis with devastating consequences, including increases in opioid misuse and related overdoses, as well as the rising incidence of neonatal abstinence syndrome. Neonatal abstinence syndrome due to the opioid use and misuse during pregnancy. The increase in injection drug use has also contributed to the spread of infectious diseases, including HIV and Hep C. As seen through the history of medicine, science can be an important part of the solution in resolving such a public health crisis. So when you look at Montana, the opioid-related overdose death in Montana, in 2016, there were 42 opioid-related overdose deaths in Montana, which is a rate of 4.2 deaths for 100,000 persons, with the lowest rate in over a decade and less than a third the national rate of 13.3 deaths per 100,000 persons. So nationally, 13.3%, 13.3 deaths per 100,000 people. Over here, it's 4.2. Half of all deaths were related to prescription opioids and nearly half to synthetic opioids, including fentanyl. There are no data available on overdose death related to heroin. In 2015, Montana providers 
medical providers wrote 90 opioid prescriptions per 100 persons, which is approximately 722,000 prescriptions in 2015. We only had, at that time, we didn't have a million people yet, maybe. I think we didn't have it yet. So that means that we, if you take, if everybody took one, that is 75% of the Montana population was being prescribed opioids. <clears throat> More than the average national rate of 70 opioid prescriptions per 100 person. So we have 90. So it's interesting that we don't have the amount of death but that we definitely have a lot of people using opioids in this state. And uh, that's, not, that's not pretty. Okay, I'll put that away. I'll put this away. So then there was an article that came out in, let's see, is this the article? It's fascinating. I think it's a fascinating article. Um, this was published actually in 2016. Let me see, is this the one? No, there was another one. I got to I gotta get this. That was really good. Uh, uh, yes, what do you need? Okay. Is this it? Yeah, this is good too. Yeah. <clears throat> well, let me first do this one. I'll do the one from 2016. The other one's from 2017. So, in the opioid, in the opioid crisis... This was published in uh, October 4, 2016. It was um, published by a website called Healthline, healthline.com. It's called Opioids Causing Concerns and Problems for Chronic Pain Patients. It says September was Rheumatoid Disease Awareness Month and it was an Opioid Awareness Week. Perhaps this was intentional, all those as these two worlds often intertwine. Many rheumatoid arthritis patients are painfully aware of the need for opioids in disease management. Um, they are taking, the article was applauded by some patients and, and patient advocates. It was an article in Arthritis Today magazine, did a lengthy story in the October 2016 issue featuring the pros and cons of opiates. The article expressed a concern over the growing epidemic of opioid uh, abuse and overdose. The article was applauded by some patients and patient advocates on various online forums while it left others thinking it was too critical and painted a negative portrait of people with chronic pain who rely on painkillers. The problem, it seems, is that many people do, in fact, misuse these highly addictive drugs. People can start with a legitimate need for painkillers and become physically addicted. This can lead to abuse and even an overdose. It can also lead to desperate people resorting to other more dangerous options, such as heroin, to feed the addiction, when all they were looking for to begin with was simply a way to alleviate the ongoing pain. However, not all patients fit into this category. In fact, most chronic pain patients do not. In an online survey conducted on the Arthritis Ashley, A-S-H-L-E-Y, Arthritis Ashley Facebook page, 85% of respondents said they did not want to regularly use opioids in the first place, but they felt they had no other option. 85%. They had no other option. Now, does that mean they're not educated? Or does it mean there is really nothing else available? When pain becomes unmanageable, wrote Bethany Mills of Utah, 
you do what you can to survive. Some people with chronic pain said they feel like they are out of options and are aware of the risk of opioid use, but they would still choose to use the drugs to relieve the disabling pain they deal with on a regular basis. They often are not offered other alternatives to alleviate their pain or other methods have failed to help them. Sarah Kosurek says, I have tried almost every way possible to deal with my pain. Now, okay, let's talk about this for a moment. I know some of you who are listening have never used opioids and you have lived with pain. You have lived with pain. Why? How? How did you do it? And why did you not use it? Why did you not use opioids? Sometimes it is a decision you make in your head that that's not the route you're going to go. You're going to try through physical therapy. You're going to try with acupuncture, chiropractic care, exercising. You try some natural things. You may eliminate some of your dietary choices, delay the sugar, give the body more tools to heal through fat, good protein, good vegetables, eating organic food, staying away from certain things. Stay away from the inflammatory um, inflammatory triggers. There are ways that you can start alleviating from 100% pain to 50% pain. Then let's see what you need. But if somebody tells me, I have tried almost every way, well, you know, I don't know what she has tried, but every, to deal with my pain. But there are days the swelling in my hands is so severe that it cripples me making me nauseous or cry out in pain. And then I have only one option left, my opioid pain medication. So, boy, and and I want to make sure that I don't kick anybody in the shins here who is listening, because if you have pain, rheumatoid arthritis pain can be severe. But I tell you what, I remember my grandmother had had rheumatoid arthritis pain, and I never heard her take medication, not never heard or talk about taking medication specifically for that or becoming addicted to it. Many times people would say, you know, this is what I need to fight. Now, let's let let's back up here also that rheumatoid arthritis is an autoimmune disease. Is there something that we can do against autoimmune disease or for autoimmune disease? For and against. Well, against. What would we say? For autoimmune disease. If you're taking medications that are ripping your intestines apart and that actually cause, over time, with antibiotic use and pain pill use, cause a damage in the mucosa, if you feel pain and now you take medication, you start feeling nauseous, you don't feel like eating. And if you don't eat, but you take the medication, you're going to lose a lot of weight. But at the same time, what can happen is that you are actually creating your own uh, leaky gut syndrome. And when you start having leaky gut, you increase the risk for infections internally, especially autoimmune disorders. And rheumatoid arthritis is an autoimmune disorder. So if you were talking to somebody like this and say, listen, we're going to have to fix your leaky gut, but you have to be disciplined in what you do, will these people be willing to be disciplined? And if not then I guess all is left is taking the opioids. We have only half hour left on Gesundheit with Jacoba. Stay tuned. Make it count. We'll be right back. Finishing the show, 
continuing our talk about the opioid crisis in this country. And it is truly a crisis. If almost 800,000 people have died since 1999, since it, it was coming out, opioids starting to get used more and more, being prescribed by doctors, first of all, then being pushed by the pharmaceutical companies to increase sales to, 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 to well, why? To make money. No, no concept of paying attention to what was happening with people who were starting to overdose, who became addicted to it, who ended up dying. There was never anybody who started putting their foot on the brake and said, whoa, whoa, what are we doing over here? This is not good. It just didn't happen. And that is one of the frustrating things that I that I feel I'm dealing with is that simply the there are people who have no conscience. There are people who have no conscience who take advantage of those who do. There is, a, how do you say that? There are people who have no concept of fear. They exist. They're not afraid to die. They do whatever it takes to get where they want to be. Uh, there are those, we sometimes call them socially awkward. They don't come across like being able to communicate with people in public or with others, or they, they don't know what it means to simply listen. They just go ahead and say what they want to say, and it's all about their agenda. And that's really annoying to listen to people like that. And they... We have those. We have people who literally want power. That's all they want. They they will go over dead people's bodies in order to get where they want to be. And you start combining these people into these leaders in pharmaceutical research and companies that you 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 pretty much get the picture of why we have a crisis. There are those who create these these synthetic drugs and. Even when they get caught, they're manipulating it in a way so that it can come out under another name. And before it gets detected, it has already already made a lot of money because some of these drugs are illegally they're made for for very little money. Once you figure out the formula, you can pretty much make it in your kitchen, so to say. So he'll be talking about this article. It's called "Opioids Causing Concerns and Problems for Chronic Pain Patients." This was published in October 4, 2016. And this article is about those with rheumatoid arthritis. It says, it says over here, in an online survey conducted on the Arthritis Ashley Facebook, I just mentioned it, it says when, pa- when pain becomes unmanageable, you do what you can to survive. And then this person says, Sarah Kosurek, it says, she says, I have tried almost every way possible to deal with my pain, but there are days the swelling in my hands is so severe that it cripples me, making me nauseous or cry out in pain. And then I have only one option left. One, 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 my opioid pain medication. I did that. I added the one, 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 one. All right. In any case, now some doctors prescribe painkillers without first exploring other options like physical therapy or non-opioid painkillers. This can increase a patient's tolerance, causing them to need higher or more frequent doses. So then my question is, are these doctors simply not educated that they don't explore other options? Or are they told what they do? Or are they financially desperate and they have 
promised their soul to these pharmaceutical companies in order to get the compensation they're looking for to make their family, uh, to enrich their own life and their family. It can also cause hyperalgesia. This condition is a heightened pain sensation, sometimes caused by opioid drugs. So hyperalgesia, it is a condition, is a heightened pain sensation, sometimes caused by opioid drugs. Instead of decreasing pain, the opioids can, after high dose or long-term use, increase levels of pain in some people, causing them to want or need even more drugs. According to the website for the Nonprofit Institute for Chronic Pain, this can occur because the nervous system can become abnormally sensitive to even certain medications used to alleviate pain. That is to say, opioid medications can become the stimuli. The opioid medications can become the stimuli to which the nervous system becomes abnormally sensitized. It can occur for a number of reasons, but one of them is when the use of opioids particularly high doses of opioids, occurs over a long period of time. New guidelines and restrictions surrounding the prescription process are intended to make opioid use safe for patients. The latest guidelines for the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, do note the difficulty of treating chronic pain. But the interesting thing is that we have already learned that when you use pain medication long-term, it actually doesn't work anymore. So even that could be hyperalgesia, heightened feeling of pain, it can also be that simply after so many weeks, after weeks or maybe a couple months, you will not find the results anymore. You're not finding it. And so for some people, they keep using it with the hope of a better outcome. But none of these medications, none of these have really been tried long term. They have not been tried for years to see what happens to, this, to the nervous system, to happen, what happens to the brain, what happens to the digestive tract. It simply says, you have pain, we give you something for pain. And again, folks, again, this is the problem with Western medicine. Not all Western medicine, but this is the problem with Western medicine. We have gotten too big in dealing with di dividing our body into smaller compartments. So now you have pain medication. You can have thyroid problems, you have an endocrinologist, you have a gastroenterologist, you have an orthopedic doctor, you have brain surgeons, neurologists, you have people who, who, who dermatologists, you have cardiologists, you have oncologists. All these different specialists, internal medicine, that is so-called everything, but it's focused on you have pain where? I got something for you. There is no connection laid. There is no lines drawn where you say, how do these connect with each other? How long have you had the pain? Four years. What happened four and a half years ago? What happened to you? Well, I fell. What do you mean you fell? We all fall sometimes. Well, you know, and then you get the whole story. Or... I went through a divorce or I had to move out of my favorite town. I lost my job. Uh, we lost a child. The dog died. Uh, we had a flood. We had a natural 
hurricane. We suffered. The whole house burned up, uh, was smothered, uh, whatever. Trauma. When trauma happens and the world keeps spinning, you got to keep running with the world. And for many people, that is not doable because they have no time to grieve. And so the grief stays with you. It doesn't go away because you haven't processed it yet. So at some point, it will come out sideways. Where is your weakness? Oh, you use your hip a lot. Well, let's send it to the hip. Oh, you have headaches. Oh, we make them. <laughs> we help you on your headaches. All right. Right? Or you have a sugar problem. Well, we'll just make you eat a little bit more so you get more diabetes or you get tingling or whatever. It is interesting how the body responds to stimuli that are actually not good for us, but they're signs that something needs to be addressed. There is an article over here about fentanyl. The fentanyl, because it is the opioid that has been in the news a lot lately. <laughs> Even though this was written about a year and a half ago, in August 2017. Fentanyl is flowing into the U.S. across the southern border and via the mail system. So obviously we have fentanyl as a prescription drug that is being overprescribed, and but it's actually being used for people going through surgery to put them to sleep and help with the pain and recovery, uh, people who are suffering from cancer. So there is fentanyl that is used by physicians to help those to alleviate pain and many times it is literally it's monitored it's monitored it's watched you have fentanyl in a pill you have it in a patch you have it in a spray nasal spray you have it in a trochee kind of goes on the side of your cheek between your teeth and your cheek and uh or your molars in your cheek and then you have a throat spray and a sublingual those are the most used options of fentanyl. There are also injections that is done, obviously, by a physician, and they're done for specific reasons. But when people have been suffering for a long time before they go to a doctor, and all of a sudden they have this almost euphoric feeling of no pain, when that pain comes back, you'll find people looking for, what just happened to me? Where do I find this? How can I do this again? And that is when it all starts. So it is the illegal stuff is coming in through the, uh, through the southern border. It's being trafficked, trafficked by Mexican cartels with, with vast dealer networks and by small-time operators ordering the drugs online. It is actually primarily made in China. It is being purchased by people with opioid addictions looking for the most potent dose on the street and by unsuspecting consumers looking for a cheap pain pill from shady internet retailers. The primary source is China, where thousands, thousands of illicit labs led by rogue chemists manufacture fentanyl and a raft of copycat substances. What I want to understand is... I don't think personally that the education system in China is that great, especially since they send everybody to either England or the United States or uh, Europe and Germany and to study, to learn. 
because the education system is better. China was never built on education. It had an incredible history of using the land and people surviving, and it has gone through all these dynasties where they would try to elevate the consciousness of people. It is not until communism took over and uh, started to dictate people what to do and what to read and what to how to live, whereby millions and millions and millions, tens of millions of people have been killed. Uh, it is unbelievable what has happened to that country. And so I don't think that personally the education was uh, first <laughs> first place because you educate people, you could actually create people who say, oh, I can read about this myself. I can actually read. <laughs> you know, that's That's nice. So I am not surprised if many American companies by bypassing the FDA, by simply going to China, set up shop and pay for these researchers to create this super addictive product that can be sold worldwide and if needed for cheap because you'll still make money on it. It's very interesting. You don't need fields. You don't need plantations. This literally gets made in the laboratory. And so it is, I'm not surprised if, let's say, Western scientists have set up shop in China and are promoting this. Experts say, uh, so uh, in China, where thousands of illicit labs led by rogue chemists manufacture fentanyl and a raft of copycat substances. Experts say the primary buyers are Mexican drug cartels who mix the fentanyl with heroin and other substances and then smuggle those diluted mixtures across the U.S.-Mexico border. But the amount of fentanyl coming into the U.S. via the mail system is growing in smaller packages and a much greater potency. I expect that in fiscal year 2017, the number of seizures in the mail an express consignment environment such as FedEx and UPS will be much higher than were last year, says Robert Perez, an acting commissioner with the U.S. Customs and Border Protection Agency. Perez says the Customs Border Protection Agency seized more than 400 pounds of fentanyl in fiscal year 2016, up from 8 pounds in 2014. In two years! It went from 8 pounds to 400 pounds. And this is just what they got. A few granules of the drug, a few granules of the drug can be deadly. And many customs agents are now equipped with Narcon, N-A-R-C-A-N, which is an anti-overdose medication in case they come into contact with the substance. If you go by 400 pounds, can you imagine how many granules that is? And a few granules can be deadly. So what role is China playing? Chinese officials were initially slow to respond to pleas from American officials to crack down on fentanyl, which is a Schedule II narcotic in the U.S. I know that Donald Trump talked to the, to the president of China and said, um, you got to stop this fentanyl thing. And um, he, he hopes he's had success. But to me... That is a positive thing. If your own president says that is one of the biggest concerns we're dealing with. China has a booming pharmaceutical industry and fentanyl was not caused, was not causing a deadly overdose epidemic in China. So the government there wasn't focusing on controlling it. Isn't that something? 
How come the fentanyl use in China did not cause overdosing? It's hard to get cooperation from another country on a substance that is not illegal in their country, says Richard Baum, acting director of the Office of National Drug Control Policy. But China has become more aggressive, Baum and others said. This year, which was 2017, for example, China's National Narcotics Control Commission, China's National Narcotics Control Commission banned four fentanyl-class substances, including carfentanil, which is normally used as a large animal tranquilizer and which is 10,000 times more potent. 10,000. I don't know who sits and counts that. You wonder? Is it 9,000? What, what do you think? What do you think, Gus? What do you think it is? Nine? No, this is more like 10,000. No, I think it is 8,700 times. Well, in any case, I don't know how they come up with these numbers. But the point of the matter is, it's pretty potent. Huh? Ten times more potent than morphine, according to the DAA. That should cause a drop in the amount of carfentanil flowing into the U.S. So carfentanil was the fentanyl invented to help with chasing large animals and then treat them for whatever they need to be treated because you had to sedate these animals. And so carfentanil is now also used by people. People find out and they start using that on the product. It's just criminal, criminal. But every time the Chinese ban one synthetic opioid, drug makers in that country tweak their recipes and get around to new restrictions. These rogue chemists in China can just tweak a molecule and then you have a complete new substance, says Carino. That often leaves American law enforcement officials three or four generations behind the chemists. Why is fentanyl supplanting heroin as a key driver of the overdose epidemic? It is easier and cheaper to produce than heroin, which is derived from poppy plants. With fentanyl, there are no crops, just chemicals. You can make it as strong as you want and in bulk and fast, says Tim Reagan, a Cincinnati-based DEA agent. And because it is so potent, a little bit goes a long way, making it extremely profitable. How difficult is it for local law enforcement officers to prosecute cases? Very much. How difficult is it for local law enforcement officers to prosecute cases? Very. With it coming through the mail, it just adds a whole different dynamic that we've never dealt with with any drugs, said Tim Sinan, a police chief in Newton, Ohio, which has been particularly hard hit by the influx of fentanyl. Like we said earlier, the Midwest has really been hit hard. This is what he says. So he's Newton Police Chief Tom Sinan. He's the director of the Hamilton County Heroin Coalition. Nice guy. He says, Sinan says, it is dangerous to collect evidence at an overdose scene because fentanyl is so toxic. In May of 2017, listen to this, a police officer in Northeast Ohio overdosed after he brushed a bit of the white powder off his uniform. He had just returned to the station from making a drug arrest, where he had used gloves and a mask to search a suspect's car. Without the protective gear, it took four doses of Narcon to bring him back. Four doses of this Narcon to bring him back. Sinan said his officers focus on reviving overdose victims and keeping themselves safe, and they worry about making arrests and building cases later. 
Even when officers are able to ensnare their dealers, Sinan and others said it can be hard to connect them to a broader drug ring. When you had crack cocaine, you had a lot of organized gangs that were really the primary pushers, said Sinan. With fentanyl, some dealers are connected to Mexican cartels, but many others are independent operators. The dealer may lead to just one string instead of a three, instead of a tree, Sinan said. Right now, we're just kind of surviving and just trying to save lives. Reagan said, Reagan said the DEA has had a ton of success identifying street dealers whose transactions have resulted in overdose death, but these dealers are often unwilling to cooperate. As for tracing sources in China, Reagan said, the DEA can turn over incriminating information to Chinese authorities to see whether they will prosecute or try to bring charges in the U.S. and ask for extradition. There is definitely more cooperation than ever, but it is all kind of new. So, why do individuals with opioid addiction take fentanyl-laced drugs when they are so likely to result in an overdose? Well, first, medical experts note that addiction is a brain disease that can impair self-control and judgment. People suffering from an addiction are not making rational decisions. Now, I've talked in the shows before, addiction can be all kinds. You could be addicted to shopping. You can be addicted to TV. You can be addicted to eating, eating, addicted to cleaning, addicted to sex, addicted to working out. You can be addicted. It's, it's, a, mind, it's a mindset. So we, we can say, well, we picked a person who is an addict to drugs well, I understand all that, but for some people who have an addictive nature, they can be addicted to something, get introduced to fentanyl, and automatically become an addict. Second, some individuals with substance abuse disorders do not realize fentanyl has been mixed into the drugs they're buying. Um, take this person who posted a message in a fentanyl chat room about what might be in his opioid pills. Quote, with real oxy, I usually have at least a day after my last dose before the withdrawals kick in. But now it's literally like three to four hours after my last dose. Is this normal for Fent or are my pills laced with something else? Finally, three, those with opioid addiction want the most intense high and some seek out fentanyl-laced drugs even if they realize it could kill them. Quote, If a user dies, others are going to try to find that dealer because they're looking for the best stuff. Here was another person who wrote about fentanyl. So, because oxycodone is so gosh darn expensive, I've decided to start using fentanyl, but have no idea how to use it, this individual wrote. How much am I supposed to use without killing myself? Thanks for your help. We are having a problem, and I, as I mentioned to you, there is so much that I have here that we can discuss. I just wish, I hope, for all of you listening, and I think most of you are people who have listened to the show on a regular basis, I really hope that you will find out that there is a way out and that you can heal from this if you have been addicted and at least try not to become addicted. I wish you a wonderful weekend. And I hope to see you again next week, Thursday, Saturday, for another edition of Gazoon Tight with Jacobus. See you then.